The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's programme. The story, which I think will have repercussions not just for America but for the world at large, is the massacre at a Florida nightclub. Uh, I'm joined by liberal talk show host, as opposed to conservative in the case of Graham, uh, from California, Leslie Marshall. Leslie, welcome to the program. Good to be back, George. Good morning. Uh, uh, of course, the reason, uh, part of the problem here is because of sort of liberal attitudes of people like yourself who who want everybody to come into America, unlike Donald Trump is trying to do something about it, uh, and this is going to happen. Well, this man didn't come into America. This man was born in the United States. He was born in New York. So Donald Trump's wishful imaginary Muslim ban and imaginary wall with Mexico that he wants Mexico to pay for would not have stopped or prevented this massacre. But but I, I don't want to get involved in Trump here, but, but this surely must focus American minds on two things. One, the issue of homegrown terrorism uh, and the fact that this is a man who was interviewed twice by the FBI, so it wasn't as if he just came out of nowhere. And then secondly, that somebody can go out and, and buy an AR-15, which fires, you know, I don't know, 700 bullets a minute or something. You're not going to shoot too many pigeons with an AR-15. Well, George, now you're talking like a liberal. Love you for that. Um, because, uh, the, the you know, when when this happens, there the United States, it seems, falls into two camps, which is demonize the religion, ban all Muslims. Even though Muslims have been in the United States since the late 1700s, and we haven't seen the terrorist attacks um, of this kind until a uh, recent day uh, by people uh, who claim to be part of that religion. One, with regard to the weapon, absolutely. Um, this it, He was interviewed three times, actually, uh, in, over a two-year period um, by the FBI. Um, they could not hold him. and you know, But this is a man who, um, on record, was accused of domestic violence. Uh, this is a man who, on record, had an explosive uh, temper and personality. This is a man who online had uh, stated things with regards to ISIS and jihad. Uh, and this is a man, like you said, that the FBI questioned, not not just because he was, you know, talking about things like this online, his rhetoric, uh, but the uh, individual that he was connected with, who was a suicide bomber in Syria, uh, not much after he had uh, connected with that guy in Florida. But uh, I, I can't, in a way, get away from Trump, because you, you have an election coming up. And isn't it true, Leslie, that increasingly Americans who may well be undecided at the moment, who see this kind of situation happening in their country, are going to be moved to vote for somebody who is saying he's going to actually do something about it. The last time somebody there was a shooting, Hillary's suggestion is we shouldn't fly the Confederate flag over public buildings. You need more than stopping the Confederate flag over public buildings if you're going to do something about this. Yeah, but the problem is Donald Trump is wrapped in a Republican flag, and the Republicans' number one lobbying organization, number one check writers, are the NRA. 
which will do anything, not just to uphold the Second Amendment, but to keep that type of gun that, like you said, can, you know, if you uh, use it in a specific way and know how, uh, can rattle off 700 rounds. You know, last night on HBO, they did a special with the creator of this specific semi-automatic weapon, this specific rifle, and he even said this was never made for um, layperson use. This was specifically made uh, for military and law enforcement use only. So if you're looking at uh, universal background checks, which overwhelmingly 97% of Americans want, if you are looking at uh, banning this type of weapon, if you were looking at, well, how did this guy get this weapon or people that have mental illness, that is more in Hillary's camp uh, than Donald Trump if you're undecided on that. All issue. right, but Leslie, there is an issue that, and, and I don't know how the FBI think, but I suspect that in America, as in many countries of uh, the Western world, uh, we are now so incredibly PC. We are so incredibly affair, uh, afraid of stepping on somebody's rights. Maybe the FBI just said, "Look, we're, we're only sort of we only got something on this guy. We haven't got everything." And if we really try and do something, uh, the the United Nations Civil Rights Department will be sitting on top of us. I mean, it don't, don't, it, this is a different world. If we're, if we're fighting guys who don't play by the rules, then maybe we don't play by the rules either. Yeah, but George, there's a couple of things here. First of all, um, if you look at the amount of racial profiling and ask any Muslim since September 11th who tries to get on a plane and isn't given, uh, you know, treated differently than other people, even though the overwhelming majority of them have nothing to do uh, with terrorism uh, in this country and worldwide, uh, that, that racial profiling exists. There, I don't think uh, in law enforcement, especially the FBI, there is that PC world at all. The people that I've talked to in the FBI, the people that I've talked to in law enforcement, um, no, they don't. They don't feel that way. It's maybe good on the political stage for advertising, grandstanding, and you know, and people uh, like Donald Trump who say, "Oh, we're not going to be PC uh, anymore." But no, the FBI is going to you know do their job. Think about it this way, George. In I remember in Dublin once, um, I started taking off my belt and my shoes, and the lovely lady in security told me, "Are you asked me, are you American?" I said, "Yeah." She goes, "Keep your clothes on, love." Because in the United States, when we had a shoe bomber, we had to start taking off our shoes. And when they had the underwear bomber, I was concerned what would be next. So uh, that, that's the knee-jerk reaction of my nation, unfortunately. But for some reason, every time we have this type of weapon used as we have in Fort Hood, in this massacre, uh, in South Carolina, at Sandy Hook, in the movie theater in Colorado, I could go on. Nobody wants to ban the gun. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In well, this instance, they want to ban the guy's religion or people of that religion. It makes no sense. Hang on a minute, Leslie. Um, in California, we're joined from Washington D.C. by uh, Michael Graham. Uh, Michael, can I say that we can we skip guns don't kill people, people kill people, and all your usual excuses for the fact that uh, a lunatic can buy this kind of gun in America quite freely. Uh, well, I, I, we can skip the facts if you want, George. That's what uh, our, my good friend has been doing in the entire nonsensical conversation I've been listening to. 700 rounds a minute with an AR-15. It's just, it's just, you're making crap up at this point. So the only question to ask is, 
whose guns is Leslie going to take away? And all Leslie has to do is get Hillary Clinton to run on a platform of, here are the people's guns I'm going to take away, and then we can have that conversation. But of course, we're talking about guns because that's much more pleasant for people like uh, Hillary Clinton and President Obama than it is to talk about the actual topic, which is that a whack job Islamist inspired by Islam has yet again committed an act of mass terror. And that's what this was. This was terrorism. I mean, this he is like having a conversation about Michael, airplanes after 9-11. You can call 9-11 a mass building collapse. You can call 9-11 a multiple homicide. But And then those are facts. But that's not the relevant part. The relevant part is this was yet another act of terror committed in the name of Islam by a guy who had multiple connections to the Middle East and who the FBI... But stop it for me. How are you going to stop it? Uh, the, the way is to fight the the war on terror, to uh. side with the uh, Muslims who are fighting for a different vision of Islam and to kill the whack job Islamists who don't share it, to take on ISIS, something President Obama did. Think about how shameless this is, George. President Obama's comments after the terrorist attack in Orlando did not use the word Islam or Muslim a single Correct. time. It would be no, like talking no. about yeah. Normandy yeah. without mentioning Nazis. It would be like talking about uh, uh, World War II in the Pacific without mentioning the Japanese. It's just cringingly embarrassing. Okay, hold on, hold on. Leslie, I was astonished. We we played the Obama clip. I was astonished that he pussyfooted around us. Uh, He didn't actually say what the facts of the matter uh, for most onlookers around the globe at this point. Obama pussyfoots around every major issue. Uh, he, 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 if a black person gets killed, Obama's the first to talk. If a white person gets killed, he doesn't. Um, I mean, this president's no good, but he's gone. So we're, we're, what's really important is the next stage of it. It is important that this guy's parents were from Afghanistan. So if Trump had been around when they were trying to come in, they, would, he, they wouldn't have come in. Then we wouldn't have had this. Well, I think it's actually, um, I'm offended that in a nation that was built and founded on freedom of a religion, that we would not only demonize the fastest growing religion in the world of over 1.6 billion people, uh, and and, do we want to keep certain individuals out who might harm us, no matter what their background, ethnicity, culture, religion? Absolutely. But to Michael's point, there were over 300 mass shootings in this country last year. And what bothers me is that, as an American, Michael and his gang only seem to care when the person pulling the trigger is Muslim. I never hear demonization of Christianity. I never hear demonization of whites. I never hear demonization of those who are mentally ill, and certainly never demonization of guns. It's interesting because Michael and his ill, with all due respect, care more about what you call it than how to prevent it or stop it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you call it. You call it radical Islam. You call it uh, homophobia. You call it hatred. You call it murder. You call it terrorism. It's not the name. That's semantics. You've got to figure out how to prevent it and how to stop it. But that's pussyfooting around, arguing over what the definition and the... Okay. The, the All right, Michael. It is an interesting, George. It. That, it is it. an interesting, George. Well, let me, let me respond at least to something. She, I mean, she spewed so many lies already. Her comments about the AR-15 are blatant lies. But I'm, I'm gonna, I don't want to go back and revisit no, that. No, they are not. How no, is they are not. How the man who made lies. the AR-15 was on, 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 on HBO last lies. night, and he you talked about the adjustment of the enabling it to shoot Michael, fix it for me. Fix it for me. But I just want to ask this. How is... 
talking about the real live problem inside Islam, where there's a civil war going on between the vast moderate majority and the militant minority, demonizing a religion. That's, this is why uh, Trump is, uh, is rising in the middle of this conversation. When you have a lunatic statements from Hillary Clinton like, quote, Muslims have no connection whatsoever to terrorism, close quote. Well, that's sheer idiocy, like the idiocy you just heard from Leslie about it demonizes the entire religion to tell the truth about it. If telling the truth about a religion demonizes it, then that is a religion full of demons. I don't believe that. I don't think Leslie believes that. But that's the nonsense that she spews rather than talk about the actual problem. Yeah, no, but okay, Mike, yeah, George, no. can I, George, yeah, can yeah. I respond to Leslie something Marshall, Michael said? Leslie Marshall. Leslie, you, go ahead. Uh, Yes. Um, Michael, I'm sorry, but we um, actually had a gun expert that I interviewed this morning on my show, and on HBO last night, the inventor of this rifle actually showed how, with certain adjustments, people that know this type of weaponry, which they do believe he did because of his position and because of his connections, like you said, interacting with those pro-ISIS folks worldwide, that he could make the adjustments to be able to uh, to uh, use 700, be able to shoot off 700 rounds. Don't believe me. Go look it up. Do do your own research on that. And I'm not lying. Uh, first of all, second of all, um, and, and second of all, and it's not even the number of rounds. I don't disagree with Michael that we need to, you, you know, there's a disease and it needs to be killed. The problem is there is also a reality. The reality is if you talk to people on the front lines fighting ISIS in Syria, in Iraq in other places in the world. The rhetoric from Donald Trump or people speaking, which is perceived as demonization of their religion in the Muslim world, actually helped the recruitment of ISIS and hurt the people who were there on the front lines trying to fight them. And these are Muslims trying, Sunni Muslims trying to uh, fight them. Uh, lastly, uh, Donald Trump yesterday, his only explosion, Michael, was not in popularity, but it was in disgust by overwhelming numbers of Americans who thought it was disgusting. He didn't talk about 50 people who were murdered and lost their lives at the hand of terrorists. He was selfish and patted himself on the back and thanked people for thanking him. That's not the type of leader we need in this nation to take care of all individuals. But, Michael, you're not a Trump fan anyway. No, not so. at all. But, but li li listen, as, as long as you have the President of the United States evading the obvious truth, which is that there is a problem with Islam that no other religion shares and that the people of Islam need to figure out a way to deal with it and we need to side with the good guys, we're, we're, uh, you're going to leave the room open for, tr for Trump. President Obama's performance was a the biggest boost that Trump has had. And it's also embarrassing that Hillary Clinton sucks so badly as a politician that she's struggling to beat this guy. But I just want to add one fact about the guns so that we can cut through the crap. The number of people who were killed by rifles this year is 36% lower than it was. Oh, uh, no, Michael, the Michael get off this thing. Michael, you're, you're annoying me is. now. Michael, you're <laughs> annoying me. The, well, Michael, you're point. annoying me. You're annoying me. The okay. problem in America is gun control, right? No, no it is. No, no, look, Michael, forget it. If you ever want to be on this program again, don't give me this claptrap about, you know, well, it's no, only a okay. gun that shoots 40 per minute against a gun that shoots 80. I mean, athletic... You know, I don't care whether it... I'm dead when the gun shoots 742 rounds a minute or 42 rounds a minute. The thing is, you can buy it down your local supermarket the same way as you buy a packet of crisps. Now, the point here is, Michael, 
And here is where I disagree with Leslie and her liberal fellow travellers, is that uh, Islam is the only faith on earth um, which wants to kill people. The Christians haven't tried killing people since the Middle Ages. Islam is creating its fundamental attitudes to women, to to gays. In, in, in Saudi Arabia, a gay can be executed for the very fact of being a gay. So is it any wonder that you have an Islamist in Florida who goes and shoots gays? Because one of the great Muslim nation, Islamic nations on earth executes gays. So the problem is that this George. is... Yeah. George, yeah. Um, first of all, um, no, um, maybe execute, but there are 74 nations in the world where being gay is illegal and you can be imprisoned and beaten. And by the way, only 15 of them are Muslim. Um, secondly, uh, as a woman, I can tell you sexism is pretty much alive and well in every bloody country worldwide. And is the oppression of a woman in Saudi Arabia much more than that of a woman in the worst world? Absolutely. But with the help of organizations and women in the Western world, that is changing. Because, hey, look, Saudi Arabia has a disgusting track record with women, but it's improving, which gives me hope for the future. Because, one, women can vote, get their licenses, hold office, become attorneys instead of just working in shops. And to me, that is all progress, albeit slowly, in the right direction. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, particularly, Leslie, for pulling over in your car on the Highway 999 in Los Angeles (laughs) with a a huge traffic jam. Michael Graham, we will talk to on Friday, and I'll uh, have a row with him as usual. My thanks to both Leslie and Michael from America. Uh, I'm not a Muslim, George, as a listener, but I'm insulted at the notion that all of them are terrorists. Nobody's saying all of them are terrorists. It, it creates, as we saw with this man, it creates uh, an attitude of, of killing other people. Um, no Christian kills in the name of Christianity, another says. Muslims kill in the name of Islam. That's the problem. Um, how many mass shootings are needed to make people realize that gun control is needed? We're all uh, on board with that. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Join now by Tom McGurk. Um, of course, he's a columnist with the Sunday Business Post, known to you all as the voice of rugby for RT Television. Um, Brexit, Tomas. What do you, it's what do you looking thinking? looking like it, George, isn't it? Very like it. Uh, the extraordinary thing is that David Cameron thought he would get rid of this problem by having a referendum, and he turned a row within the Tory party into a national row. And the more you talk about it in Britain and the more the argument went on, the more the debate continued, the more and more people are deciding they've had enough of the EU. I must say, George, I, I admire them. I, I, I'm absolutely delighted the way they're standing up to the people who rule us in Brussels. And I really wish a few people in Ireland would start listening and looking at what they're, what they're doing over there. Uh, well, um, forget about Ireland just for the moment, although I'm not going to forget it in terms of talking to you. Yeah, yeah. The latest polls are actually suggesting that the Leave It is quite substantially in front. Well, one of the things that has happened they weren't calculating on was that they reckoned the Labour Party supporters uh, would vote to remain. 
And by nearly 50%, if not more, the Labour Party supporters are going to vote to leave. And that's not surprising because my emigration is the, or migration rather, is the huge uh, cause celebre. And it is the working class who are most in contact, who have most argument about that, who are most concerned about it. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's now looking that a significant part, I mean, it's an extraordinary coalition. You have, you have middle-class middle Tories and working-class Labour all agreeing that Europe is no longer a good thing. But uh, Tom, um, it, it, uh, and I'm joined by Tom McGurk uh, talking, he's a columnist at Sunday Business Post, of course, and we're talking about uh, the the vote next week for, on, on uh, Brexit or otherwise. Tom, uh, one of the things you say, the deal with Labour, but I never got the, now you're closer to it as a, as a columnist, I never got the impression that the Labour Party was fully committed to this. I mean, they didn't seem to campaign, or you never got the impression well, they were campaigning. Well, 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 Corbyn is sort of just about done enough and turned up at one or two places. Wouldn't appear with, <coughs> beg your pardon, wouldn't appear with David Cameron. Uh, but uh, I don't know whether you saw the debate last week, but uh, the the uh, Giselle, I forget her second name, the Labour Party uh, outstanding ex-German uh, lady who come to live in Britain, uh, member of Parliament, she was absolutely outstanding. She spent many years uh, with the Commission in Brussels, and uh, her knowledge and her small print on it was hugely impressive. Uh, George, again, the opinion polls are hard to call because opinion polls with referenda are different to opinion polls with general elections. And they got it so wrong in the general election, expecting a hung parliament and the but, Tories but, got a majority. Uh, yeah, but Tom, just before I ask you another question, um, the point is that migration is a monster problem for Britain. Not illegal migration necessarily, but the fact that there are 27 countries, 26, 27 countries in Europe, all of whom want to come to England. So the, 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 the problem is that 10, 20 years from now, uh, the British uh, population is set to soar to 85 million. I couldn't agree more with you, George. I couldn't agree more with you. Migration is the greatest crisis facing the European Union and facing us as well. I mean, Angela Merkel must have taken leave of her senses when she said we have an open door a few months ago. Come. And my God, if I was in the back end of Africa with the arse out of my trousers, I'd get up on my bicycle and head for, uh, for Brussels or Frankfurt or Paris as well. But uh, it's it... a crazy situation. And w one of the most extraordinary things about it is that the failure of the European Union to deal with it illustrates the intrinsic failure of the European Union itself. Yeah, uh, but what about us? I mean, Britain remains uh, the the uh, major trading partner. It's a huge area for Irish people to still travel there. We have a huge number of people living there who are who are ours. Uh, surely we need we should be thinking the same way as they think. No, uh, it's a very interesting moment. Uh, it's a it's an existential moment for the Irish George because we're being asked to make a choice here between London and Brussels. Now, London is far deeper uh, in our emotions and affections and knowledge than ever Brussels was. And if, if the Brits come out, if this Brits exit, isn't there a case for us to look again at where we stand? Could we be like Norway or Switzerland? 
Could we have a special deal where we have a relationship with Britain and another relationship with the European Union? After all, you know, it's, 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 it's crazy to think the border for the European Union is going to be a mile down the road in Newry. But what do you believe will happen at the border and at Heathrow when we're going in if Britain leaves? Are we are we then going to be in the same line as the people off the Air India flight or are we going to need a triptych to bring our car across the border like we used to in the past? Well, it's, it's more complicated than that. <clears throat> All of those born in the Republic uh, before 1948, are entitled to British passports. Uh, that was all covered in the actually in in the Anglo-Irish Treaty that there was a free passage. And I don't see why there shouldn't continue to be free passage. That's an agreement we made between Dublin and London. And I must say, I can't imagine how Brussels would interfere with that. Now, <clears throat> the, all this talk is going on about what will happen at the border, and there'll be so on and so forth. Quite honestly, George, none of us knows what's going to happen. Because it, this is an entirely different situation for, say, the border from, 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 from Greece uh, uh, into Macedonia or something. This is an entirely different situation. The, the, the area of free travel in the agreement between Britain and Ireland has, has existed since 1922. Yeah, but the, the the British now, I think, if, if I've I've always thought that they were they were likely because the thing in Britain is this isn't sort of un uneducated, unintelligent people who are who are voting against it because they think you know there'll be a rash of migrants coming in. There are huge the city of London. Huge numbers of people in the city of London are going to vote to leave because they think Europe will damage London as a financial centre. I have a I have a well got cousin who is not only a leading member of the Tory Party but actually on the on the on the Royal Palaces Committee. Can you imagine, George? And she was in here recently, and she said to us quite seriously, "You know," she said, "My country's disappearing." And she lives in an extremely expensive and naughty part of London. And I thought to myself, if the feeling has risen up that level in the sort of social and economic order, it, it must be more widespread. George, I, 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 I think it's going to happen. And, you know, I wonder have we replaced the colonial DNA for the Brits with a sort of colonial DNA for, for the European Union? Because nobody in this country has a single criticism to make of this situation. And once this is over, we are heading for some sort of federal political Europe. And the European Union has stripped us of democracy. We don't have democracy anymore. We have members of the European Parliament wandering around still trying to find the toilet. The place is absolutely chaotic. It is not a parliament at all. Essentially, Brussels is run by an elite. Uh, Mr. Juncker, who elected him? It is run by an elite of civil servants and lobbyists. But uh, what about us, like? When we got a huge amount of money in Europe, we got the road to Cork. Uh, and they got all of our fish. And you look at some of the things they've done absolutely insane. George, why was the sugar factory in Carlo closed? What was that to do? Europe decided they didn't want any more sugar produced, so they closed that sugar factory in Carlo which usually affected thousands And which thousands everybody of now realizes was a, an incredibly stupid decision. Absolutely. Then they come out with this decision that is it is it 60% of our renewable energy must be must be from 
energy must be from renewables. Now, that's a great idea if you own a turbine factory for making wind turbines in Sweden or Germany. That was imposed upon us time and time again. For example, two weeks ago, the Freedom Party in Austria, which is a right-wing party, almost won the presidency. And Juncker told the Austrians that if the Freedom Party won, Austria would lose its voting powers in the European Union. So I was reading Ron Little in the Sunday Times, a very fine journalist, ran the Today Show for years in Britain, and he's voting for Brit exit, and he says something extraordinary. He says, the European Union is now becoming like the old Soviet Union. That You don't know who is running the place. You can't change it. You can't vote for anybody. And it's an elite. Look at the way they treated Greece. Look at, the, look at what was shoveled out on the Greeks. Look at the warning and threatening was made to Greek democracy. Look what they did to us. I, I'll never forget the press conference when the, when the three gentlemen arrived in Dublin. Do you remember? Yeah. And I, I'll never forget the European Union person running the press conference who said, I want all your questions first and then we'll answer them all together. Uh, That's the facts of Europe. Yeah, but we might not be where we are today if we were not members of the European community. I couldn't agree more. But let's take it and run, Georgie. Let's take it and run. Look where we are now. How much more have they to offer us? That's the question. The biggest market in the world. But but why should we be cut out of that market? George, I walk into the shops and buy things from China. I buy things from America. They're not in the European Union. You don't have to be in the EU to trade with the EU. And anyway, at the end of the day, trade is about A, a person A wanting to sell something to a person B. That's what trade is about. All of this stuff has been erected to, in the middle of the argument, and they've adopted the same tactic as they adopted in Scotland. They're frightening people. I mean, imagine Sunday morning, out came David, our prime, your prime minister saying the pensions are going to be affected in a few years' time. You might lose your pension, said Cameron. What an extraordinary thing to say to people! But what about Cameron? He cannot stay if if they lose. I don't think he can stay if they win. I think the Tory party is now so bitterly divided. He is something like a hundred members of parliament who want out of the European Union who might decide to sack him. But the British, Tom, go right back to the very beginning. The British were never fully committed. That's why they didn't change Sterling. Like, we were good boys. We were. We voted the way they wanted us to. We took the euro more than any other country in Europe. We accepted the currency. Yeah, We've yeah. done... We were really good boys. But We've we had done a bunch... A, yeah, but we had a bunch of civil servants who couldn't believe you know, the quality of the water out in Brussels and the pensions and the elite and the jobs and the, and the earnings and the money and the size of the European Parliament. I mean, the European Union, George, has a massive bureaucracy and people earn huge amounts of money. It's a real honeypot, I tell you. So well, why, would, why would the ruling class want to get rid of that? But what we would then have to do is we'd have to link the punt to Sterling, uh, if if we left as well, that might necessarily be a bad thing. Perhaps not, but George, look, this is the question. At the end of the day, what means more to us, given all our history, and all of our culture, and all of our trade, and all of our experience? What means more to us, London or Brussels? It's a fascinating question, and my instinct is that 
it's it's uh, it's London. All right. Well, it'll certainly. I think now the way it'll require a sea change. I suspect um, for for this referendum to win because the momentum is heading towards leave, isn't it? Yeah, Do you think? it is. It is. I mean, I mean, there is a theory that Downing Street are concerned that they won't get the they won't get the uh, stay in voters out, the remain voters out. So they're sort of frightening them by saying how far in a, uh, in front the leave vote is to frighten them out. But, I mean, that is... Uh, there, and You know, they seem to have run out of arguments. I've been watching... I watch a lot of it on television. I've been watching some of the audiences and so on and so forth. And you know the BBC and ITV go to enormous trouble to try and fill these type of audiences. So they break down exactly between remain and leaves. And I have seen no evidence of any passion for remain. All right. None whatsoever. Okay, thanks, Tom. Tom McGurk, a broadcaster, columnist with the Sunday Business Post. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie And I am going to South Africa to J.J. Cornish, a journalist based in South Africa. J.J., welcome to the program. Long time now here, George. Lovely to be with you. Well, of course, the first thing is Ireland beat South Africa at home. And when you think it took the All Blacks the best part of 100 years to beat South Africa in a home series, uh, this either demonstrates that Ireland have gone, come a long way or South Africa have gone backwards. Well, I think there's a little bit of both. Um, George, uh, this is the first uh, test you've won uh, in South Africa. Uh, certainly not a series win. You can imagine what we will do coming back next week. Uh, but it's the first time that a new coach has lost his first test since the re-entry of South Africa into world rugby. That's, you know, just over 20 years ago. But but the part of it is, and I've asked you to talk to me because you're a journalist, not a rugby commentator, is, of course, the South African team, unlike any other national rugby team in the world, is selected on a quota basis. Yes. And, you know, I mean, there's there's many arguments about that. Should should there that be that interference in sport? Because it's not uh, by any other name. Uh, that's exactly what it is. But Alistair Kutsia came in as coach, and his uh, job will be to have the, the team 50, 50, 50% ethnic black South Africans and fifty uh, at least 50% by the time of the World Cup in 2019. Well, he did pick more black South Africans in this team on Saturday playing Ireland uh, than ever before. Normally, the quote, the racial quota or the racial makeup is about 12, three, tw- uh, 12 whites to three colors. Now, uh, the, and the fact is that rugby uh, remains predominantly a white game. But uh, just a, a month ago, the sports minister stopped rugby, uh, athletics, cricket, and netball removed their right to bid for international competitions because they were not making up the racial quotas uh, that had been set for them, the targets that had been set for them. So it's a hugely fraught issue in this country. And, uh, George, I have to tell you, the whole issue of racial makeup is is a difficult one. You know, uh, South Africans are so, so cautious on this issue of race. Um, and, and, you know, you, you and I start an argument in a bar 
you all you have to do is call accuse me of being racist, and you've won the argument because I'll be on the back foot battling against uh, your accusation. Never mind the merits of my argument. And uh, reading the newspapers, there's not a single rugby writer that said this exactly that made the telling you've made now that uh, this has something to do with the racial quotas. And I have to tell you, in honesty, myself, I was speaking to the uh, an ambassador from New Zealand, as it happens, who uh, said to me, well, exactly which players would you have preferred not to see? Which players do you think we badly missed? And as I watched, uh, there, there weren't any. I mean, the play, the, the guys played badly, and that's the reality of it. No, but uh, hold on a while, JJ. Um, it, the thing is that um, it, the, the concept of picking international sporting teams based on any kind of a quota goes against the whole idea of sport being of excellence that the best people get selected. It doesn't matter whether the best people were or were not selected. The point is excellence was not the defining factor in selection and I suggest to you A. It is no coincidence that South Africa lost to Ireland and their under 20 team lost to the Argentine Well you know and South Africa has lost uh, to Japan, you remember that in the yeah. World Cup and then to Argentina so I mean we've seen some really we've stared some quite awful defeats in the face, the issue of quotas has been around for some time. So the issue of excellence, absolute pure merit, has, has not been in play for well, at least a decade. So, you know, what the, the, the fact is, and, and, you know, any kind of political interference in sport is complete anathema to the governing body, certainly the Olympic body and so on. But uh, some exception is made somehow or other for South Africa because of the years of skewed uh, racial makeups under apartheid, where black people were simply banned from playing rugby or playing international rugby. And we had Danny Craven, a much-respected head of South African rugby, saying a black man will never pull a Springbok jersey over his head. Well, uh, that wasn't all that long ago. Now, what do we expect? The change will happen by osmosis. This is something that we're experiencing in business, in social life, in everything. The change has to be, in a sense, accelerated. Uh, but, and and, and I, I mean, I, I, I would have to say I would accept it as a South African if it means that we move off the top tier of rugby for a period of time. But, but you will like move for the authorities right. to be honest okay. about it. Okay, I, I, I hear you. But, but the point, the point is that um, South Africa are probably, and maybe it's all for the better. I'm not actually arguing about the 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 the, the apartheid past or how you actually fix it. I'm not, that's not the argument. But so the South African rugby public must now accept that for a decade or more the most powerful rugby nation on earth will no longer be so. George, absolutely right. I, I fear that you are absolutely right. I have to tell you that if I tweeted that remark under my name, I would lose uh, uh, my clients tomorrow because it would be seen as racist. And, 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 and I believe that that to be uh, uh, you know part of the political correctness in South Africa today has absolutely emasculated us. Everybody is so very, very careful about what they say. 
I think if a rugby writer were to say exactly what you wrote, what you said, I would I would say, well, I agree with that. You know, I, I, I can't, on the one hand, claim that I fought apartheid and that I opposed apartheid, and I will not accept the logical consequence that we have to accelerate the uh, arrival of black sportsmen into sport. In, 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 as it happens in football, uh, you know, the, the, the South African team is 90% black, and that is the popular black sport. Now, the, so what you are saying is the kind of discussion that happens in private or in bars, but people will not come out in public and say that. And yes, I do but, wish that yeah. we could have greater honesty. Yeah, but the the other point at issue here surely is for for South Africa when when Mandela stood with Francois Pinard when you won the World Cup in nineteen ninety five, there was just one black man in the squad, which was Chester Williams. Now. Things have come a long way since then, and um, we we absolutely accept that. But it, the other problem for South Africa, and I've only I was there on my holidays a number of years ago, and I, I'm in a car and I'm listening to a radio talk program, and you'll tell me who he is. I can't remember his name, but he was the head of the junior section of the ANC. And he said, you know, we are going to, in, in, I'm paraphrasing, but he in effect said, we are going to discriminate now against white people. Um, and if they don't like it, they can get out of town. And I remember in anger saying, ringing up that radio station and saying, I didn't fight against apartheid in Ireland to see discrimination remain in South Africa, but against a different race. Well, exactly. Again, I, I have to say, I concur with your point. I don't know if the leader you speak of was Julius Malema. The very guy. Hoofed, the very guy. Eventually hoofed out of the party for bringing it into disrepute. And he has started up the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is the third largest party in parliament now. And ironically, with the provincial elections coming up on the 3rd of August, we might find that, for example, in my city of Pretoria, the ANC would lose control and we uh, would find that the uh, left-wing uh, Democratic Alliance would be in coalition with the economic freedom fighters against the ANC. And these are parties of the two extremes. Uh, or the, uh, I say the left-wing, the De Democratic Alliance is largely liberal. And, and uh, so that sort of thing is going to happen in our, in our, in our very, very interesting uh, political makeup. But you see, the point, the point is... We have to have these changes, and the changes are going to be painful. And I have to say, as a white person, I have felt that pain on a number of occasions, and I'm still going to feel it in the future. But what am I supposed to do? Say, no, I must stand against it. Uh, I should take a principled stand and say there should be no political interference in sport, which would mean that this should happen by osmosis, that if you, if you come to invest in my country, you should have an absolute right to hire only the best people, uh, that would be nice because you would get more investors coming to South Africa. The fact is you have to have what amounts to what they call in the United States affirmative action, what we call BEE, Black Economic Empowerment. 
and in the case of rugby, it would be BSE, yeah, Black but, Sporting yes, Department. All right, but finally, JJ, time's against us. It is also, I mean, you, I know, having been there, every time South Africa play in Ellis Park or, or Newlands or wherever, you have a packed crowd supporting the Springboks in, in the green jersey which they normally play in. It's going to be really interesting how the South African rugby population, which one would have to say is largely white, will support a team that doesn't win. That's going to be really interesting when South Africa goes from a country which invariably wins to a country that invariably loses, as it will for the next decade or more. That really will be interesting to see. And, you know, during the apartheid era, many black South Africans and colored South Africans supported the All Blacks. Yes. What we're seeing now, and the other thing, of course, we're seeing a hemorrhaging of our white rugby talent who realize there may not be a future for them here and are going abroad. So there's a sort of a two-way loss yeah. here, the loss of people because of the quota system and the loss of people because of simply people voting with their feet. All right. Thank you so much. Journalist JJ Cornish in Pretoria, South Africa.